Yes, hello out there, everyone. Welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McClain. Flynn, so what's been going on? Well, we got the new archive from uh, May 16th, 1988, from uh, Madison Square Garden, and uh, it was one you and I wanted. If only you more than me, you advocated more for it than I did. And for uh, for the inclusion of crying, which, as you pointed out, was the last significant cover that Bruce performed on that tour. Actually, the last significant song that they probably have, crying. And uh, it's, a, it's a big one. It's a big song. It is a big one. And and 34 years, as I said the other day, what kind of maniac leaves this kind of performance in a vault <laughs> for 34 years? <laughs> I mean, really. We can say that about a lot of these archive releases. So, <laughs> so more than 34 years. It's just funny because, as he says, it's one of his favorite songs. He delivers a beautiful performance on Crying, and it's something that we have advocated for, and it certainly deserved to be heard. And now, fortunately, however long it took, it's here, and and it is wonderful. And, and the entire show is great. It also includes the first release of the New York, New York Coda that ended the show. Not a huge deal, but cool to have, especially since it was at the Garden. You also on this one got a little bonus sound check, which they, uh, this is the third time I think they've done that on the tunnel releases, right? Yes. Yes, it is. What did you think of the In Dreams? Not as interesting as Reason to Believe or For Your Love, but uh, I'll I'll give a few more spins. I've only listened to it a couple of times. It's It's always cool to have more. And of course, regarding the performance of the show, Bruce was on fire. By that point of the tour, he, he they were entering the home stretch. He had kind of put some of his emotional problems behind him, some, and he was he was ready to to burn that building down, and and he did. You can tell there's an edge in his voice on stuff like Boom Boom and Adam Raised the Cane, and it just yeah nails it. <laughs> I, I want to say one more thing about the sound check, but before I say that, it, you can also tell throughout the entire evening there's cracks about wives and. He told the You Can Look story with that ends with the home shopping network selling <laughs> knives to st- stab your hubby with. There's definitely a, an intensity and something burning inside of him. Of course, we know now after the fact that his marriage, which actually had its final anniversary that week because May 13th was his wedding anniversary to Julianne, it, it, there was... Uh, there was some turmoil going on, and and it's clear in the performance, and I think he channeled it into something really great that week. Earlier in the tour, we're looking at you, Nassau Coliseum. He wasn't channeling it as 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 well, but by the uh, but by May, a month and a half later, yeah, everything was just uh, he was on fire, as I said. Let's mention the sound check again, just for a second, because and I saw online some people were like, well, why do they keep releasing? songs from these tunnel sound checks and nowhere else well for one thing obviously they recorded them but for another over the history of bruce sound checks very often he's playing stuff that he's trying out to play in the actual show the tunnel tour was totally different and these sound checks every night were like shows unto themselves and i really have to say i know this one's not going to happen but it would be so cool if they took one or two of the tunnel sound checks and made that its own archive, because if anyone, and you can go on, I think probably Jungle Land has a couple of them. They're floating around. Some of them are not the greatest quality, but there is an array of material, mostly covers in these sound checks, that's really a fascinating listen. 
Yes, uh, he was doing a lot of that, and they were and they were long sound checks too, about an hour, hour and almost an hour and a half in some cases. The ones you're talking about are from Tacoma, from May 5th and 6th, and then Atlanta, uh, March 22nd, March 23rd. Those were the ones that somebody was actually able to record. As you said, not the best sound quality in the world, but it's it's the best glimpse we we have of of Bruce and the band just kind of messing around on stage. Interestingly enough, Crying is one of the few songs that came out of those sound checks and actually into the show. And as we can see from the release, he obviously had Orbison on his mind. Of course, In Dreams is an Orbison song. And that was the type of material he was doing. He was doing a lot of 50s and 60s songs in those sound checks. And again, if they have any of the complete ones recorded, and I think they do because we've now gotten at least songs from three of them, it would be very, very cool. I, I don't expect that's going to happen, but just <laughs> throwing it out there. I just want to go back and, and append something to what you just said about songs and the sound check coming to the shows. And you got a, Across the Borderline was was another one. He had been playing that one in March and April before it was finally released as part of one of the, the Los Angeles 88 shows, April 27th to 28th. I, I forget which. That was a significant inclusion as well. Yeah, that that was a big inclusion. And and across the borderline is I thought the performances on this tour in particular were very special. Of course, we also got it in the 93 release that I think was last month. As far as the show itself, very high quality performance. Uh, one of the more basic set lists until we got to the encores. And it's a really good listen. I, I don't know if it displaces. I think the final night at the Garden, May 23rd, is is my favorite of the the tunnel releases that one is really a barn burner but this is also well worth getting i gotta say the last night at the garden may 23rd is actually my favorite release i think of the entire series to be uh to be honest uh tunnel was my first tour and so it, it holds a special place in my heart and then as you said it's just a just a barn burner of a performance and the light of day that's the best light of day ever period the end I will agree with that. <laughs> but yeah, this show is very solid. As I said, great performance, opening night. Things were just going to go up from here, and it was starting at a pretty high point already. One other thing I want to mention about this release, and this kind of stuff has bothered me slightly throughout the entire series, but now on this one, I think it's particularly egregious what I'm about to bring up, and that's the tracking of the songs and how the intros are placed. The intro to I'm a Coward, which is like four and a half minutes long and is basically it's either its own song or part of I'm a Coward, is tracked at the end of You Can Look. So if you were just listening to the show and want to listen to I'm a Coward complete, you can't. You have to listen to You Can Look first. And some people are saying this is nitpicking whatever. And perhaps it is, but these releases are really good. This is an issue that would make it better, in my opinion. I, I don't know why they're just not, if they don't want to do it as one long track where the, with the intro and the song, I don't understand why they're not creating a separate track called Intro to I'm a Coward <laughs> instead of putting it on the end of You Can Look. And and this happens repeatedly. Well, I, I agree with you 100%. And it also happens on this release with spare parts. The intro to spare parts is actually tacked at the end of Brilliant Disguise. And in past releases, they put the spoken intros to a song at the end of their previous track. 
I understand what they're doing there. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. In these two situations with this show, there's actually music part of those introductions. It's mind boggling that it's not part of the next song. I don't get that. I don't get at all. I'm one who I'll put some of these songs into my into a, to a playlist and I just kind of hit shuffle on it. And and so now what? I'm going to listen to be listening to Brilliant Disguise and it's going to song's going to end. And then, boom, I'm going into the intro to Spare Parts. And then just as, as I'm expecting the Spare Parts song to start, it goes to the next song you know whatever is next in my shuffle and that's just that's just frustrating yeah it's just this is an unforced error and i don't know why they don't correct it other people have brought it up long before this but i I just thought the i'm a coward was particularly egregious and as you say anyone who happens to be listening or tracking their stuff in itunes whatever music software they're using it's totally screwing everyone up. So they they really should fix that. And again, just create a track called Intro to I'm a Coward or have the entire intro and song be one track. It's a little mind boggling to me <laughs> that the way they did that. Well, they learned their lesson on Ain't Got You, She's the One, or, or She's the One with its various intros. And the ones in the past, they were separated into two songs, which I can kind of get, but... Again, if you're just going to put that song into your shuffle, obviously it should be one long track. I get that. Yeah. And, you know, and going back to what you said, we, we kind of laughed at the 2014 releases that had Bruce Talk 1, Bruce Talk 2. But uh, it made more sense than uh, than tracking or, or tacking the intro to the next song onto the end of the previous one. Moving on to tonight's topic, we're going to be talking the Devils and Dust Tour, which, of course, took place in 2005. Now, earlier in 2005, we had learned that Bruce would be releasing the album Devils and Dust, which was coming April 25th. And that was also the day the tour was going to open. But interestingly enough, early in March, he may be considered doing a very different type of tour than he wound up doing because he did rehearsals at the Paramount Theater that included a small band. Yeah, and, th- and that would have been a totally different tour from what we saw that year. And we're not really sure entirely who was in that little, what it, what other musicians were there. I guess we know Nils was there. Uh, I, think I think we Steve heard that Steve, Steve Jordan was on drums. But that's about it. And unfortunately, we don't have any have any recordings of of what the, of what those rehearsals sounded like. So we really don't know what kind of direction he may have been playing with there. I'll assume there was a bass player involved. Maybe it was just going to be four people, Bruce and the three band members. From Bruce Bass, we do know some of the songs that they ran through, which are many of the regulars that wound up being played on the tour. Jesus Was an Only Son, This Hard Land, Goes to Tom Joad, Youngstown. I I think it would have been really interesting if that had happened. Of course, one of the things that I've always hoped he would do would be some kind of smaller band tour. And I think he could really do some unique stuff but uh, as we know it wound up that he decided to do it just himself alone on stage again as he had done in in 95 to 97 yeah and i i wonder if how he would have done in terms of uh, the setless variation that ended up happening that year how that would have how he would have done done that with with a small band and i just wonder if the arrangements just just would have been too many of them to try to come up with Hopefully he'll do it at some point. I I think that's the one thing yet that we haven't really seen. 
And if I recall properly, he also did some experimenting in terms of rehearsing prior to the Joe tour with a small band. Am I remembering that right? I that I do not remember, not at all. But you were you were you were more plugged in than I was at the time, and I don't remember reading any of that on the AOL board or, or Lucky Town Digest. It did seem that, from what we know, this was was more developed. There were multiple days, obviously the fact that he brought Nils in, they must have somewhat seriously concerted it before nixing the idea. Took him three days, but then a month later when they did come back for, when he wore, when Bruce himself came back to do rehearsals at, at the Paramount, uh, it was just him. Now there was a show that took place that wasn't an official part of the tour. I wasn't there. I believe you were there. A storytellers took place on April 4th, 2005. Yes. What did you think of that night? Um, you know, I haven't thought about that show in, in a long time. Um, I mean, it was intense being in that small a, a venue with, with Bruce playing all the all this stuff solo. I mean, being ten feet away from him playing Thunder Road on the piano that was that was pretty intense. I gotta I gotta say, and he did a he did wonderful versions of, of the Rising and, and Sunny Day, and and of course, obviously, Patty came out from Brilliant Disguise. Actually, I mean. It's not really that much different than what you saw on the on the home re- home video release of it, but it was it was very special to be there in such a small theater and to see him trying to find his way, even if the Q and A session was yeah, whatever. <laughs> no one's well, going to ask him the questions that you and I want to ask him anyway. That's for sure. Certainly not in that environment. I think the coolest thing about that was Bruce singing Sunny Day in his Smokey Robinson voice. That was that was very cool. That was one of the cool, coolest moments I've, I've seen. Well, I, it must have just been a treat. And I, I'm sorry I wasn't at that one. But I was at the first rehearsal show with sitting you. Right, on, sitting right next to me. <laughs> yes, on April 21st, 2005. Thinking back on it now, the show definitely took to me a different feel than the Joe tour did. For one thing, as we know, the Joe tour was very, very specific, both in terms of the artistic statement he was making and the tone. Here he, I think, loosened up a little bit, of course, the presence of the other instruments that he wound up playing through the course of the evening was really a major difference than what he had done 10 years earlier. Yeah, even if the encore was basically the almost copied directly from some of those 90 95 96 set list um this our land my best was never good enough and acoustic percussive promised land to to close the show i remember uh my our friend bernie he we walked we walked out of the show that night he said oh man i feel i feel like i just went back in time 10 years but you're right it's despite the similarities in in some of the some of the songs especially in that encore uh he was trying to do something different there were some stretches where it didn't feel that much different. I mean, certainly the hitter into Madame Morris Banks really did echo the the stool set to to end the main set on, on the Joe tour and and stuff like uh, Black Cowboys, Long Time Coming, Silver Palomino. They all seem to come right at, right out of that that Joe framework, so to speak. But then you get to the piano stuff for you tougher, and and yeah, there's a, there's the digression right there. And those two songs were followed by Part Man, Part Monkey on the Gretsch, which, again, provided a much different feel than anything that happened on the Joe tour. Now, that's not one of my personal favorites, although I did think the arrangement in 2005 was a lot more effective than the band version in 1988. But just the variety of the instrumentation, which 
was still fairly limited on these opening nights and of course would grow by the end of the tour. He basically was playing any instrument he could get his hands on. <laughs> that is true. I mean, uh, you haven't lived until you heard, uh, I want to marry you on the ukulele. So <laughs> we're, we're going to get to that later. Let's talk a little bit more about the set list. And, and as we get into night two of the rehearsal shows, which was on April 22nd, there, there's going to be even more shift from the Joe tour. Now, how are we going to tell this? Uh, we factor in somewhat on April 21st. <laughs> at what point did you, did you shouted it out first? And, and then I followed at some point in during the first rehearsal show, you shouted out for real world, correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember when it was. I remember I was going to yell it out if he didn't play it. Um, and I was going to say, I'll give him the first night. And if he doesn't play it that first night, I'll yell it out the second night. But then I got, yeah, let me just go ahead and do it. I must have been somewhere around like Leah, the, but like maybe between Leah and the hitter or something. And well, I yelled it out. You yelled it out. And then, uh, hey, the next night. We had we I guess we had Landau on our side, right? I, I think so. I, you know, look, I think they knew all along, and Bruce talked about this. I th- was it with Hyatt, with Brian Hyatt. He he knew that the real world version that was on Human Touch did not work anywhere near as well as the piano version. And, and regardless of us yelling out for it, which may or may not have been appropriate, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but it worked. It worked. <laughs> I think he would have gotten around to it because yeah. of the nature of the tour and the piano. But man, that second night, the the show started differently anyway, because he did the stomp version of reason to believe at the bullet mic for the first time. And when you're talking about distinction from 1995, that already on the second night, it, the, the show started to really go to different places. Yeah. And I, I think he was stretching himself musically. And there was a, a number of different, song selections and then yes he he early in the show when he first sat down at the piano he did for you again and on this night instead of doing tougher than the rest he did deliver the solo <laughs> piano real world that we had dreamed of seeing and it was worth the wait uh yes it was and he i mean he, he did come out before he played it he did say a couple of couple of a couple of guys a couple of people yelled for this last night and I don't know if he referenced Landau specifically by his name or whether he just said a friend of mine said, yeah, I should I should do it. But he played it and he he got a standing ovation. You remember yeah, that? It was, That's it was, that it was big. Yeah, that was huge. I remember everybody standing. That was a powerful moment right there. Just that was just amazing. Now, there were a couple other things in this show. This was the first time he played Reno and. People joke because of the subject matter and and the 250 up the ass and all that. But let's be honest here. Reno is is A, a good song, and B, live, when he performed it solo on that stage, it was tremendously compelling. Oh, absolutely. And he knew it was compelling, too. It, It was telling a tale, and he really delivered the intensity of that tale. I think every time he performed the song and it's really, it's a shame. Of course we say this so often, but you know, Reno was never played again after this tour. I I don't think it's going to show up on many band tours, but, (laughs) but it is a really, really well-written, interesting song. And in, in some ways a little distinct from the, from the type of writing he has done 
at other times in his life. And that was then followed by racing in the street, which was another change. And, and, and that was also beautifully done. What you got from these first two rehearsal shows was that he was locked into a concept in the sense that there were, there were going to be bookends to the show, which of course the, the promised land ended the show A reason to believe started the show pretty much every night at the start of the tour. But in between using these various instruments that were on stage, he, he did deliver quite a selection of material, and, and that would continue throughout the entire tour. Well, first off, I want to go back to Reno. And I, I'm surprised you didn't say this, that I think is one of, it's one of his most cinematic songs. Oh, yeah. I can, I can see the film in, in, my, in my head. I can see him looking out the window onto the street below with, as the first verse ends. And then I can kind of and I can at the end of the song, I can see it coming back. And I thought the imagery and the way he the story in that song. And I think a lot of people can relate to it. And, you know, sometimes all you need is is never quite enough. And it was all it's almost a, a kind of a retelling of, of dry lightning, but in, actually in a much better, better way. Yeah. The thing about Reno was and, and I think it really shows his power as a performer that song in particular him standing alone on stage as i said he really brought the intensity every night to that song and you're right it's it's very cinematic and he delivered it in a very cinematic way and then following it up here with racing in the street and, and I, I if i recall properly he did tell the two lame blacktop story that night right yes because racing in the street also of course is very cinematic mm-hmm I mean, one thing I thought was interesting was that his mom was at the show on the first night in the front row and then and he didn't play Reno and then she wasn't there the second night and he played it. <laughs> I always thought that was kind of interesting. But then but then he played it almost every night for the rest of the tour. So he couldn't have been that embarrassed by it. Now, he did also shake up the encores a little bit that second night. Waiting on a Sunny Day was played. I, I, I thought the versions on this tour were, were effective and Bobby Jean was played. That was pretty much the same arrangement as the Joe tour, right? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah I, re- I really like Sunny Day on this tour. Uh, the sing-along with the audience, it wasn't quite the stadium size that we had in a couple of years earlier, but I thought it was very effective and, and it did shake up things, shake up the encores from what he had done uh, 10 years prior. So let's move on to the actual start of the tour, which was at the Fox Theater in Detroit on April 25th, the same day the record came out. And he he stuck to the format that he he was doing in Asbury. The show opened with the stomp version of Reason to Believe. It ended with The Promised Land. He did put My Best Was Never Good Enough into the show. I wasn't there. You didn't go to Detroit, did you? I did not. But I heard it was a very solid show. And, and Real World got, again, got another uh, rousing uh, response from it. From 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 Detroit, I, I wonder if that gave him added confidence to stretch himself because he hadn't really played a lot of the '92 material for so long. Now, at, at the end of the Rising tour, he did get to some of it, I, mostly off of Lucky Town. There were not a lot of songs played off Human Touch, and he had certainly never played Real World with the e Street Band. And I wonder if the crowd's acceptance of, of that song and and the passionate response gave him the confidence to go, okay, you know, I can, I can stretch myself here. I can do some weird arrangements. I can play some of the stuff off 92 and some of these other records that I don't touch on very often. And the crowd will go with it. 
Well, I think that's part of it. And I think another part of it is just the fact that since he wasn't with the E Street Band, he felt a little freer to explore the the non-E Street parts of, of his career. Um, obviously, in the end, every song off Tunnel of Love was performed on the tour. I think almost most songs, a good chunk of songs off, off Lucky Town ended up being performed. I'm looking at Book of Dreams, which which he did in, in Glendale, Arizona on on April 30th. I'm you know, does he play that if he doesn't do Real World? That's you know I don't know, but I, th- I think the the combination of being E Street lists and, and and yeah the rousing response that he got to Real World every night definitely played a played a role. One other thing to mention on this tour: the first leg here in the U.S. Detroit was a case of this. The Fox Theater, a beautiful old theater. Then he did do a couple of shows in between that were at a little bit larger venues in Glendale at the April 30th show you just mentioned it was the pared down arena in addition to book of dreams that night which was a, a very nice selection for him to do and and unexpected he also premiered all I'm thinking about off of devils and dust and then you got to two shows in Los Angeles which I was fortunate enough to attend and this was one of those special things, much like Detroit, the shows, I think, on this leg that took place in these grand old theaters. And, and in L.A., he did the Pantages Theater, which holds about twenty five hundred people. There was there was something so special about seeing Bruce in that setting. And he he seemed I don't know if it was because uh, the friends that were in the audience in Los Angeles or or what he really hit his stride here in LA and brought in a number of selections into the show that were, were really unexpected. What do you think? Sadly, or unfortunately, I only saw one show in a theater on, on this tour. And that was actually the the tower in Philadelphia. So, but yeah, it was a little different seeing him in a cordon off <laughs> Meadowlands arena. It didn't have the same kind of, kind of feel. It felt more, uh, I don't, I'm trying to think what the word is, but uh, generic. Theatrical. It was, it was, and it was more theatrical in these, in these Broadway palaces. That that was the type of theater he was playing in, and he seemed to feed off that. Now I'm not saying he didn't do great shows in the half arenas, and and of course later on, as crazy as it sounds, he he did complete arenas. <laughs> Just a man alone standing on stage, playing an auto harp at points. <laughs> But here, it, these theater shows, the, the first night in L.A., and it, the, the show opened, again, with reason to believe, but that when he got to the piano segment, and, and there were gasps in the audience, he did a version of Incident solo on the piano that was was drop-dead gorgeous, and then that was followed by a piano arrangement, If I Should Fall Behind, and then a few songs later, a song that, in my wildest dreams, I never thought I'd see performed, he, he did Cautious Man, which was only the second time it was ever played and it became a semi-regular for the for the rest of at least of the leg if not of the tour i don't know if i i must have seen it somewhere i i'm not really remembering right now anymore uh, forgotten more than most people will ever know but yeah that was a special moment right there it, it really was and and he the entire night that night i, I felt that he was so locked in. He did Real World again. He did a very nice version of My Hometown on the piano. And then in the encores, he did Johnny 99 with the bullet mic, which in a way, it was sort of like, uh, excuse my language, in a way, it was sort of like, what the fuck is going on here? 
but it also sort of exemplified exactly how far he was willing to go to stretch himself and the audience. Now, on the Joe tour, as we've discussed before, he he really challenged the audience there too, but in a, in a different way. And what I, what I enjoyed about this tour and the, and the way the instrumentation, not all of these arrangements worked, I have to say. The Johnny 99 on the bullet mic, which would come back later, is imperfect, shall we say. Hmm. Okay. I liked it. I liked it. I liked him beating the crap out of his guitar and 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 the distorted vocals. I liked it. I liked it a lot, actually. I, there was something, I don't know, the, the use of the bullet mic is, on some of the songs, I thought Reason to Believer worked extremely well. We'll get to Born in the USA later. Some of the other songs, I, I don't know if they were as successful, but I thought the risks that he was willing to take, was it was really cool. And I think that was especially the case in that type of small theater. Now, the other thing that strikes me is that I never saw a show in the half arena on that first leg because I saw the California shows where we were lucky they were all in theaters. And and you and I saw the Paramount shows. You saw both. What are your thoughts on on the difference? Yeah, I, I saw both uh, both kinds of venues. I saw the Tower and I saw the Continental Airlines Arena show. And and yeah, the it really lost something when when it went to those those half arenas and but at the same time you rather be in the show, be at the show than have to hear about it the next day from your friends. Yeah, I get what you're saying there, although I will point out in Los Angeles, the second largest city in the country. Yeah, that's that's he did that two is, shows in a theater which uh, and they were let's just say uh, in this reunion era period the Pantages shows were two of the hardest tickets you're ever going to see. I imagine the tower was the same way. Tower was very tough. Yes. Yes. And I'm, so I'm kind of surprised he didn't do something different in, in, in Los Angeles, like playing. I, I guess he not, he definitely wasn't going to do the Staples center and, but I'm not f- familiar with what other, other venues he could have played, but I, but you're right. The second largest city in America, and he's playing how many seats? Fifteen hundred, two thousand, no, twenty five hundred. I think twenty five hundred. Yeah, yeah. But still, it's you know, second largest city is a. It's been a it was a pretty huge Bruce market for so many years, and he's coming in playing two nights and you know, five thousand seats between the two, whereas he was playing eight thousand seat arenas and at the Meadowlands in Boston. So actually, the Boston was the Orpheum, wasn't it? So. But in in D.C., I guess he played uh, uh, George the George Mason Patriot Center. Not exactly a small, not exactly a small intimate arena either. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.
Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. The second night at the Pantages was was a wonderful night. And we had talked about that they should release a theater show from the first leg. Of course, they have now with the tower. If they ever come back to the first leg, the second night at the Pantages would be a, a great selection. There had been a pump organ sitting on the stage for how many shows had he done that? He had done about, the, including the rehearsals, about six or seven shows. That in the left corner of the stage, there was a pump organ, which wasn't getting use. I don't, was it there in Asbury? I don't think it was, but I couldn't I don't think it was off. either. It was there on the tour. It was certainly there the first night in L.A., and it wasn't getting used. And the second night, he came out, and he sat down at the pump organ, talking about playing a song that uh, you and I would like to hear. He sat down, he did a version uh of my beautiful reward that was was so gorgeous and and the way he incorporated the pump organ the sense of melancholy i i think that it gave the song which is certainly one of the happier songs in his catalog would would you say that the, would you agree with that it's definitely one of the more uplifting song not, not, or upward looking songs i wouldn't say it's happy because he's still searching for his beautiful reward but it's certainly looking looking up and and you're right it's in that way the pump organ did add some melancholy to it and it was a wonderful way to open the show he did it a lot of the rest of the course of the tour here the way he used my beautiful reward it, it, it's interesting because of course in 9293 was used to complete the show and here was really setting the show up and and it would be followed by the stomp version of reason to believe and then devils and dust and, and i think those three songs together were, were highly effective very much so and then you you add in youngstown right after devils and dust and i mean that's as full-throated as almost any e street e street show and then he followed Youngstown with Empty Sky. And I, I thought Empty Sky, when it started this night, which was, it was the tour premiere, I was so happy to hear it. Unlike the versions he had done on the Rising Tour with Patty, this was an acoustic version of the, the rock song, Empty Sky. Yeah. And he was just, he was firing on all cylinders. And, and it was made more pronounced by the fact that it was in this theater. It was projecting a huge type of rock show with some of these songs that you certainly didn't get on the Joe tour. The Joe <laughs> not, tour was a folk tour. All. This was a rock tour. I remember you saying that back then he didn't strum any songs on the, on except maybe darkness on, on the Joe tour, like he did empty sky and even, even Youngstown, even though he did Youngstown on that tour quite a, obviously almost every night, but yeah, it was, this was definitely more of a rocking show than what he had done 10 years earlier. And then the, the second night continuing when he sat down at the piano 
and this was the first time we we had heard this and we were we were very lucky to be the first audiences to actually hear the piano version of the river i was floored it was and, and of course we had heard various versions of the river i thought the 12 string version from the joe tour was was really well done and and really effective but wow when he sat down <laughs> at the river, piano and played the river that was that was really a moment and it went right into tougher than the rest the these shows were were really a treat you know now now that we're talking about it the thing that we saw this material especially these shows in these intimate venues very very fortunate to have been there oh absolutely i i love that tour tremendously i know you're talking about specifically being in these theaters and as i said i, I was only able to see one of those t- types of shows well i beyond the rehearsal shows but just the breadth of material and this this the whole tour in general was was just special the other interesting thing and just a sense of exper- the type of experimenting he was doing the if i should fall behind was played on the piano night one at the pantages and the encores of night two it was played on acoustic guitar and I wish he had continued a little bit more of that along the tour. Now, he, there were a couple of other songs, I think, that were played on multiple instruments, not necessarily back-to-back nights like that. But as a performer, what a sort of unique thing to, to, to think that not only was the set list going to be changing every night, but <laughs> that you could see the same song played on two different instruments on different nights. Yeah, that was that was very cool. And he has a lot of songs where, where he could do that. If some surprise fall behind was was just yeah, I think didn't he do it on pump organ later in the summer? I think so, yeah. I think yeah, we, so he we, I mean yeah. one song, three different arrangements. That's that's impressive. And that's the kind of thing you know, for you could could have had the could have gotten the same treatment on piano and guitar, which I think he did. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. We'll, we'll have to double check that. <laughs> and Nils made an appearance on Waiting on a Sunny Day, the second night in L.A. Now, I felt, and he really flushed the song out. I, I felt that that sort of gave a feel for what must have been going on. And, and, of course, they had rehearsed together just a month and a half earlier. So that, to me, gave a sense of what maybe would have happened had he gone out with additional musicians. And it, it definitely was effective. But I, I think at the end, even though I would like to see Bruce do a small band sort of ensemble, I think he made the right call here by by doing it himself because the, the power of him being alone on stage, I think is pretty unparalleled by just about, I can't think of another performer, maybe Dylan, alone on stage who has that kind of power. You're absolutely correct. Bruce, Bruce has that power. He commands the stage whether it's him or whether he's leading a band and when he, when it's just him and, and the emotions that come through on, on stuff like, like Nebraska, then devils and dust, all that stuff. It's, I think it's intensified when it's just when he's, when he's by himself, if that's even possible. Well, he is, I think addressed this and he talked about it on the Joe tour that he felt that just being alone on stage was, was, was a very powerful image separate from whatever, the instrumentation or whatever he was singing, just his, the image of him alone on stage creates a sense of power. And he does, as we know, he's a very iconic look. You know, you think about the, the, (laughs) of course, the silhouette with him and Clarence and from Born to Run, Bruce standing on stage when they illuminate him, 
definitely gives off a power <laughs> that is is different from many other performers. And maybe it's in part because he's generally throughout his entire career been so physically fit. Some of the ladies out there would probably say he's a very striking figure, but whatever it is, he has an aura about him that mm-hmm. is really, uh, you know, as we were just saying, I, I think it's pretty unmatched that, you, that there's a, maybe on one hand, you could find people who stand on stage and, and project that kind of power just by <laughs> being there. Very short list there. It's like the best actors, you know, when you think, and, and I've been lucky enough to be in the room with a couple of these people. And I've said this to you before, just in talking generally, that's how Bruce strikes me. Like I've been in a room with Brad Pitt where you're just like, you cannot believe a human being can be, have that level of sort of, uh, mystique about them just by standing there. And Bruce does that on a concert stage. He knows it. And maybe that's where, <laughs> yes, he maybe, does. yeah. He, and maybe that's where it comes from because he does know it. And the level of confidence you have to have to do that on stage every night, it, it seems really remarkable. Whatever he has, whatever, however he gets that power, he, uh, he, he wields it very well. And again, one of the things that made, made this tour so, so unique and, the fact that it was him by himself playing playing 140 different songs over the course of the tour and each one each one was powerful i got i got to be honest there yeah in later years of course when he would get to broadway it, it was the same thing and that was why broadway was so effective the charisma and the type of performance now broadway this was a much more musical experience than broadway and and as we're talking about the the instrumentation of some of these songs the experimentation it really worked well. And, and moving on from Los Angeles, they went up to Oakland. I was at that show, too. That was another theater show. Very, very difficult ticket. He played one show in the Bay Area in a tiny theater. It was it was crazy. And this show relied a lot on what had been done successfully in Los Angeles. He did bring in two new songs to the set, Nebraska, which I thought worked really well, and Land of Open Dreams, which, which I have to say... As much as I love the song, I never really loved the acoustic version he did in 2005. That is a song that he, of course, later did on Broadway in a, in a similar arrangement. I thought it worked better on Broadway, uh, especially with with the pairing of Dancing in the Dark. I didn't think it was as effective as some of the other stuff he was doing in the encores at this point, but it, it was a new song into the show. Okay, I see. I really liked it, and... At the show in Chicago, Rose Rosemont, however you want to put it, he did Land of Hope and Dreams and the Encores, just like he did in, in Oakland. And one of the strings broke. And he's actually, he, but he doesn't stop playing the song. He keeps going. And the audience is singing along and he's bouncing along or he's doing the percussive thing on the guitar. And it, and even listening on a on an average at best bootleg recording, I got I got goosebumps. That's how effective that that song was was in, at least in that performance. And I I thought that was other performances were were almost as good, but that one in Chicago was extra special. Yeah, well that sounds very special. And and there's going to be there's some other special moments in that Chicago show. First, let's get to Denver. He which was after Oakland. He did the promise there a nice selection to bring in. And then May 10th, he went to St. Paul, two incredibly rare selections that were played. Paradise, which was positively 
brilliant. I actually think Paradise was probably the best song played on the Devils and Dust tour. It should have been played more. It would later points be paired with Real World, which was just, it was off the charts. I think you and I, in discussing the archive series, we feel that Paradise should be on the next release, that that's an important one to hit. That would be a good what did one. you think? Yeah. yeah, what did you think of Paradise? Oh, I thought it was was tremendous. Um, didn't strike me the same way it, it did you. I I certainly I would put a Real World ahead of that one in terms of overall songs on the tour. But the, on the eBay piano, it's something. It's it's hard to believe that something on the eBay piano could have that much power. But that's that's what but that's what Paradise is. Well, remember, it wasn't just on the eBay piano. It started when he shifted to the grand piano halfway through the song. I thought that was so compelling. Just like he did with Walk Like a Man. And that's yeah. Yeah. When he when he when he switches when he switches the instruments like that, it's I mean, that's a goosebumps moment goosebump moment. <laughs> uh even even just listening. And yeah, you're right. That was now that I'm remembering here, uh yeah, that was very powerful. And I thought it was done almost on a on a pretty regular basis. Not in your eyes. I only saw it once on the entire tour, and I saw a number of shows on that tour. Uh, was that in Albany? Yes. As I said, I've forgotten which which songs I saw on that tour. I mean, maybe I need to go back and refresh my memory before we do part two here. But it were quite you're right. It was quite powerful. Now, the other song he did in St. Paul was A Good Man is Hard to Find, Pittsburgh, which is certainly not a song that pops up very often. <laughs> not at all. Has it been played more than twice? I think it was played again on like. Uh, he did Wrecking it Ball, once. I think he he did it. Didn't he do it once in Pittsburgh? Did he do it on the reunion tour? No, he didn't. He only he's only done it twice. As I'm looking at it, as I'm looking at the listing on Bruce oh. Bates. the only other time was at one of those Soldiers and Sailors uh, Hall shows in, in Pittsburgh right. in 2010. Yeah, this was this was the live premiere. It was not done on the reunion tour. This was the live premiere of A Good Man Is Hard to Find. And it was played, according to Bruce Bass, in honor of uh, Sergeant Gerald Vick of the St. Paul Police Department, who unfortunately had been killed in the line of duty earlier that week. Yeah, that that's a very powerful reason reading why the song was played. And and I, I guess, as you're saying, it's the only time it's been actually played at a, a ticketed Springsteen show. The Pittsburgh shows were actually they were ticketed with Bruce on with Bruce on the oh, bill. So, OK, but but, you know. You couldn't say it was only time it's been performed as part of a Bruce Springsteen show, Bruce Springsteen only show. Now, from St. Paul, they went to Rosemont, the Chicago show, and there were a couple of things in this show that are worth discussing. The Lonesome <laughs> Day was played at that, was, I think. It was, done at the re- it was done at the rehearsal show, yeah. so it's not that big yeah. of a deal. No, but the the encores kicked off with... And I and I love this. This is another one of those sort of mind blowing ones. I'm on fire played on the banjo. Who would have ever thought we would see Bruce play a banjo? <laughs> well, hey, it, it inspired uh, Mumford and Sons to do it. Uh, how many years later? Well, the Mumfords are definitely big Springsteen fans, and, and I, I don't think that band started until like 2007 or so. So maybe, and, and I'm on fire is a song they regularly covered later. It's funny because you don't. Th- in theory, you think Bruce Springsteen playing a banjo doing I'm on fire. You gotta think it's just gonna be so bizarre or, or just so bad. But and but it worked extremely well. 
I mean, I think the version of this song that people talk about is the one from Rome. And right. that was, he just nailed it. He just nailed it. And it, it just became, again, became a totally different song in a very powerful way. What I marveled at the entire tour, even in some of the stuff which maybe didn't work as well, certainly I'm not including I'm on fire in that because I thought it was it was great. How did he come up with some of this stuff? <laughs> like, was he sitting at home going, you know what, uh, tomorrow night I'm going to break out my banjo. What song can I play on that? And he came up with I'm on fire. Just it's crazy. Cra it's crazy. Well, and then what about the auto harp? You know, that was where did that come from? That was just so that was even more bizarre. Well, like, well, I think and we'll, we don't want to uh, spoil uh, the 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 end of the tour. But I, I think by the got to the by the time he got to the end of the tour, he basically was just he must have been lying in bed going, let's should I bring out a washboard tomorrow? I mean, <laughs> that would have been interesting. But, but you got to mention Dream Baby Dream. Well, yeah, that's the other big thing that happens here in in Rosemont. And he debuts on the pump organ uh, cover of Suicide's Dream Baby Dream. And this really, as crazy as it is to say, because he'd already been doing all this wild stuff, but the Dream Baby Dream really set the tour, I think, into the next phase. And yes. I remember when it was done and people, because I wasn't in Chicago. I don't think you were either. No, I was at the next show. And oh, yeah. So Virginia, you saw it. I actually was done with the first leg at this point. And I remember people describing it to me. And then we heard it. And again, it, it comes back to the power of Bruce alone on stage. And and he really, I think with Dream Baby Dream, he he sort of in his own mind, he he came up with the way to really harness that in its fullest power because he was sitting at the pump organ. Then it was obviously going through some kind of repeater or something, which allowed mm -hmm. him to get up and <laughs> yeah. con continue to sing as, as the pump organ played. And was that, uh, how powerful was that? Incredibly, incredibly. So there was a point in the song where I think that some kind of bass kicks in and it's just like, Holy crap. That was, that was the emotion right there. And to go back to what you were you said earlier, I think this was this really set the tour apart from made it a totally different animal animal from from the joke tour. Just the addition of this one song just separates it in every in every way. It just yeah, promised land, okay, yes same as what he did a few years earlier. But then Dream Baby Dream, nothing. He's never done anything like this before. And it it gave this tour its 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 identity. Yeah, it was a signature fashion. moment. It was a yes. signature moment. Yes, it was. And yeah, I guess by the end of the tour, when it was going on for about eight, ten minutes, eh, got a little, he bloated it out a little bit. But when it was first done, it was, for, and the first time you see it, it's just like, holy crap, this is amazing. It was mesmerizing. Yeah, it, it really mesmerizing. When I saw it, and, and I think it had probably gotten a little bit longer by the time I got to see it, but still, it was and listening to the bootlegs at the time, it, it, mesmerizing is the right word. He, you know, again, how did he come up with that? He, we know he's a suicide fan, but just the arrangement, the use of the pump organ there, really, really wild. And from there, he, you were at the next show in, in Fairfax. There were some interesting selections there as well. Wreck on the Highway coming back, a couple of Jode songs. He was really... He he was really letting loose at this point, and and I, I think on a nightly basis, 
How do you think he came up with the songs? I, you look at the sound check from the show you saw on Fairfax. Stolen Car, Wreck on the Highway. Well, to uh, be honest. One be, Step be, Up. I mean, to be to be blunt here, I, I don't I don't think songs from the Ghost of Tom Joad album are, are exactly shockers for for the for this tour. It's it's no. basically I mean, in some ways it's very similar to solo acoustic. So it makes total sense for for just about every song from the Ghost of Tom Joad album to be to be performed. That's almost like a no brainer. But then but then, yeah, stuff like Wreck on the Highway, yeah, that's and Stolen Car, which like which he sound checked, as, as you said. And we'll I think played in the next show, right? I think those were kind of like the next the next level because they were still quiet songs that lent lent themselves to to a solo acoustic arrangement. He just wasn't doing that on on the on the Joe tour. He 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 had his his narrative his what he his his, his set list arc back then, and there really wasn't much room for for experimentation. Whereas this whole tour was about experimentation. And so bringing in Wreck on the Highway, Stalling Car, they they work quite well. I thought they were they were tremendous additions to to the show. But they did fit in the manner in which he was using those piano slots early in the show. There were generally two of them. Stolen Car in particular, and we know he mentioned this when he did the River show in 2009. That helped set up some of the writing on on Tunnel and Beyond. There was a relationship slot. And in that sense, I think Stolen Car and Wreck on the Highway fit in perfectly. Yes, they do. Yeah, that, that kind of the, the two piano piano songs that he did early in the show, I guess in the first third of the show, they it was always almost always one like I don't want to say E Street classic, but, but certainly in that kind of in this in the seventy three to well, I guess probably seventy three to eighty uh, time frame with you know for you the river racing in the street stuff like that. And then the second song you write was kind of was real world or tougher than the rest, and or in these situ or in these two shows, uh, uh, Fairfax and in uh, Cleveland, Wreck on the Highway, Stolen Car, they all worked tremendously well, tremendously. Uh, the next show was the Tower Theater. We just actually spent quite a bit of time talking about this because it was an archive. What like three months ago? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, got to highlight the Iceman to Incident segue was just yeah. Big. Off the charts, beautiful, just amazing. I never thought I'd get to see the Iceman period, and then to see it in the in a theater in Philadelphia. I mean, think about that. Uh, it's yeah, th- that's a big one, and and I'm sorry <laughs> that that's one I'm sorry I missed. Now the next show, you you went from the Tower Theater into <laughs> what they called the Theater of Continental Airlines Arena, which really was nothing of the sort. No, not a theater. It was just uh, black curtains all around. Now, we uh, happen to mention this show in conjunction with the Chris and Ann Carr benefit and, and the unfortunate incident with Terrence Tent- Trent Darby. Uh, this, of course, was a, a much lower grade incident, but y- you were there. Why don't you tell us what happened and, and what set Bruce off on, on this night? I think he already kind of had a, a chip on his shoulder uh, going back to New Jersey, who, you know, they're not exactly known for uh, embracing non-E Street. I mean, no offense to my Jer- my New Jersey brothers and sisters, but you know, especially when you when you play uh, when he, when he plays larger venues, that they expect certain things, and he wasn't bringing that. So I kind of think he already had a chip on his shoulder, kind of expecting some kind of pushback on this on this solo acoustic and type of show. And then one of the one of the speaker banks that was pointing at the upper deck, 
or at least a, a higher level, not 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 the first level. They went out, and so they couldn't hear. You don't you don't really realize this how much the a speaker pointing directly at you really enhances the sound. You just think it's a it's a loud concert, and you're gonna hear everywhere, and that's just not the case. And but the um, speaker bank went out, and a whole bunch of people were yelling, and you know I, I don't know if they were trying to yell, "Hey, the speakers are out, we can't hear anything." But uh, Bruce seemed to have a get a little puss on his face and was like, yeah, you know, this is what you get when you play New Jersey or something like that. Well, could do New Jersey. And it's funny because it had nothing to do with what he was doing on stage, except they couldn't hear what he was doing on stage. And it was just kind of uh, kind of weird. Yeah, he, he clearly misunderstood that what the ruckus was about. Yes, exactly. And I, I guess he they finally got the message to him bef- between the main set and the encores. But and I think he acknowledged acknowledge it in some way but it wasn't he did, didn't seem to to totally apologize to to those group to that group of fans who couldn't hear a part of a show obviously for those fans the show was marred but was it marred overall by what happened you know i don't, I don't think so i he still hit all the right all the right notes for me real world obviously he did the paradise into the rising I thought that was that was quite a, a unique pairing, and he did the wish because his mom was there, and and I really enjoyed the land of open dreams at, at at these shows, and and certainly hearing Dream Baby Dream again was uh, high on my list as well. So I it didn't didn't do anything, it didn't didn't impact my enjoyment of the show anyway. Now you had gone from this very intimate classic theater to <laughs> uh, the the cement monstrosity that is continental airlines arena how big of a difference would you say it had on the show moving since you actually saw them back to back you know that's a good question i really hadn't thought about it um because we actually were in the upper upper level of of the tower theater so we were relatively far away at least in terms of being inside a theater I remember the sound just, I mean, beyond the bank of speakers going out for those poor, those poor souls. Uh, I think the sound just wasn't, just wasn't as good there. I think, it, I feel like the sound was all over the place. And, and as I said earlier, you just, I just felt further away from, from the action, even though I think we had better seats at that show than we did at the tower. I, I still felt removed from things. I don't, I don't know if that, I hope, I hope that makes sense. Oh, it totally makes sense. And from there, there was one more show on the first U.S. leg. It was at the Orpheum Theater in Boston. Actually, uh, this one is, I think, one of the few shows, if not the only show, where there was no tour premieres uh, on this first leg. He he pretty much incorporated what had been successful over the last few weeks, including the banjo I'm on Fire and, of course, Dream Baby Dream. He dedicated Leah to... John Kerry, and he introduced Cautious Man, according to Bruce Space, as one of his favorites, and which does call into question if, if it's one of his favorites, why wasn't it played for like 20 years? But that's a whole separate issue. Well, I think it's uh, it's almost like his his autobiography in a, in a song right there. He just can't he can't admit that, and he can't. There's no rock. There's no rock arrangement that he could do in a in a, in a stadium. So I, I kind of see it. That's true, but he's done a lot of intimate stuff in in the arenas, even with the band. And it is a song that I think would have certainly in '88. The fact that it was only played once is surprising to me, looking back on it. Very. And I, I think it is good that he was able to finally bring it out here. And, and and I think for those of us who were lucky enough to see it, it was it was a real treat. 
Yes, I don't. I don't. I'm looking at these that list, and it doesn't look like I saw it that spring. So I'm gonna have to have to look at the summer shows to see if to see where I could have caught it. Okay, well, we're gonna look at those shows in the next episode anyway, so you have a little bit of time to get to that. <laughs> I, what I should have done was listen to listen to my eleven disc compilation I put together from this tour before we started talking at all, but kind of ran out of time there. That should be like required homework for our audience. <laughs> that's eleven disc, man. It's uh, that's that's a lot of homework. I don't even know if I've ever made it through that entire. Set, oh, my heart, you're you're breaking my heart, Hal. No, but you're we'll you're, talk you're, about you're, that more also next time. You're forgiven. I got a lot of other positive comments on it, so I won't. No, I, I'm not your compilations hurt. are always top notch. Nobody doubts that. But eleven discs is a lot. Hey, it was it was at least one performance of every song from the tour, so. Uh, had to be nice and complete for that one. It is for the completeness, for sure. <laughs> Actually, it's not. It's for people who don't, who aren't completists, who don't want to get true. every show. So they, but they still have or can hear each unique song from the course of the tour. That's true. Unfortunately, you can't do that anymore. At least you can't source it from the official releases. Yeah, that's all right. I think uh, people just put it into their into their own private personal playlist, and I think that's good enough now. All right, well, we're going to come back and discuss the Devils and Dust Tour some more in the next episode. In the meantime, let's wrap it up. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. You can find us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. On the web, we're at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.